G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are things? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always on the podcast, and and good to be with you for a very interesting topic that we've got for today's episode, which we've called "When Too Much Choice Is a Challenge." And this is a, a bit of a side topic in many ways from the last couple of podcasts that we've done on flow and just having a bit of a discussion after last week's podcast, Dad, that we basically thought that one of the things that can complicate flow, can complicate our access of flow in many ways, is if we have too many choices. This is something that can be a little bit paradoxical in some ways, but I suppose the more that you unpack it, the more it seems to make sense in a way. So I suppose that is something that we'll be looking at and unpacking a little bit today. Yeah, that's the thing I find most interesting about this because the idea of flow is we're really engaged in what we're doing. And to think of being engaged in what we're doing, it would seem to be an advantage to have a whole lot of choice over choosing a job or a university course or where we go on holiday or what leisure activity we engage in. But actually, sometimes having too much choice can interfere with us engaging with a certain course of action or an alternative. So we're going to unpack that and talk about more some of the downside of having too much choice, which otherwise would seem like a good thing. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? And it's one of the things, you know, particularly in recent times, Dad, you know, the word freedom and words like oppression and all this sort of stuff, they're such, they're such kind of buzzwords at the moment that, you know, I think this is a really relevant topic. And, and you know, as you say, like stuff like freedom, it just seems to imply that the more choices that we have, the better it is. But, you know, at the same time, I think at the end of the day, if we were to sit down at a restaurant, someone was to hand us a menu with 500 things on the menu, you know, it's going to be pretty hard in that situation to, to actually make a choice and so that seems to suggest that there is a little bit more complication than just you know the more options that we have the better it is for us. Yes and I think these days that challenge is reflected in a number of big decisions that people might be faced with. What course might they do after school for example? What kind of job are people going to look at? Where might people live? There tend to be many more options now than there would have been certainly a generation ago and and several generations ago. There were far fewer choices like this when in some ways life was simpler and maybe less daunting about those choices. People will be making different kinds of financial choices these days. Hey, well, I invest in crypto as well as other more conventional kind of things. People will be making health choices, what kind of vaccine they might choose was even one of the more recent examples. And over and above that, there are even extra choices that people might be looking or expected to make at times these days, including one's own gender identity. So it seems to be getting more complex. The wider range of choices, the increasing number of them, doesn't necessarily make life any easier. Well, it's such an interesting point, and I think even maybe the, the pandemic, I think, potentially even contributed to this a little bit further. You know, you take something like, for example, where to live. There would be so many professions and jobs in the past where if you wanted to work in that area, you'd maybe have to live in the city or you'd maybe have to live in a particular area where maybe that's not necessarily a choice that's being made for you these days. And, and it's interesting because I think that, as you say, I think there are certainly more choices than there used to be. And I even find it funny with something like, for example, TV. You know, back in the day, there used to be, what was there, four or five channels? There was, you know, ABC, your SBS, your 7, 9 and 10. That, that was about it. There might be a few surplus ones. Whereas these days... You know, all of the channels have about three different versions of themselves. You know, you got your, what is it, 7.2 and your 9.0 nine, nine and all this sort of stuff. Plus, you've got your streaming services. Uh, you've got your Netflix and stuff, which isn't even a TV service at all. It's basically on-demand viewing, which is, again, this whole different thing to scheduled viewing in a way. So, like, it just seems that there are so many more options than we used to have. You know, the internet is potentially something that's that's really facilitated that in a way. But, but as you say, like, I think it doesn't necessarily make things easier in a way. And, you know, one, like one term that I've heard that I actually really like is analysis paralysis, in terms of sometimes you can almost be stuck with so many options and, you know, there can be so many nuances about the potentiality of each option that you can almost just go, 
My word, like how am I going to make a decision in this situation? And that's the thing, isn't it? If we have that kind of indecision or that inertia, that is going to get in the way of flow. It's going to disrupt us from taking some course of action and just following through with that. And this might be some of the reason... When we think, going back to what you were saying about, say, freedom, you know, our culture values freedom, control, autonomy, well, shouldn't more choices add to that? There are so many different roles, including work roles that we can choose. But why is it then that from, say, 1900 to 2000, that last century, that depression probably increased about 10 times in its incidence? And why would suicide rates have doubled amongst young people over a couple of decades late last century, for example? So we face this conundrum. If liberty, freedom, autonomy, choice is so good, how can these things be increasing so much and yet there seems to be more misery? One other finding being in America, for example, even though the GDP doubled, so financially, economically, people are so much better over several decades late last century, for example, the proportion of people identifying themselves as very happy decreased by 5%. Doubling of GDP, which we often used as a measure of well-being in a particular country, but the actual happiness was decreasing. So we face these conundrums and some people like Barry Schwartz, who is the author of a book called The Paradox of Choice that we're drawing on today, he was suggesting that some of the difficulties that we face relate to too much choice or how we manage with choices. Well, I think they are, you know, such important points. And as you say, like they're, they're not necessarily intuitive. It is a little bit counterintuitive in a way. So I think it is something that is worth sort of having to think about. And, you know, there's a couple of things that really stand out about that to me, Dad. And, you know, the first one is, like, I remember when uh, I believe Steve Jobs came back to Apple late 90s, one of the things that he basically did was, I think they offered, you know, in the, oh, it might have been 56, I got 56 in my head, but I got, I'm probably making that up. Then they had like, you know, 56 products that they offered and he drew it back to like seven. And he basically said, look, you know, we're, we're focusing so much on choice that we're not necessarily doing as much about you know, the quality and all this sort of stuff. And, and his role at Apple was in many ways to help people make less choices but it was almost as if he'd, he'd made the choice for them in terms of going, well, we'll just make it a better choice and, and sort of decide on your behalf. And, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things about Steve Jobs that from when he came back to Apple that seems to highlight that point. But the other thing that really stood out for me, Dad, is, you know, I remember when, you know, I was basically had a bit of time overseas and I was in Africa in, in Tanzania. And one of the things that stood out to me about spending some time in this uh, village called Jambiani, village on, on Zanzibar of about 4,000 people, you know, over the other side of Zanzibar from the capital. It was a bit, bit rural and stuff, but some of the happiest people I would have ever come across in my, you know, in my life. And, and you know, being a you know, pretty privileged kid coming from Australia and, and not necessarily being exposed to that much of the world, I was in many ways surprised because of how happy they were with how little they had in some ways and to what coming from, a, as I say, privileged background in Australia would seem to me like not having certain things well, they didn't necessarily have such a concept of, of not having something for them. It wasn't a choice about whether or not to have it. They just kind of got on with what they did have. And to me, there was such a, a positivity. There was such an infectious happiness that they all had because certainly there was, you know, not so much a kind of consumption and, and material reliance for their happiness and all this sort of stuff. But I think part of it was potentially not having as many choices or, or maybe not you know, painstakingly reflecting over as many choices. And, and actually, it's one thing that I think came up from Barry Schwartz's book is that when we do have so many choices, we can almost blame ourselves at times if we don't make the right choice too. Yes, and that's one thing we'll look at, some of the reasons why extra choices or having so many choices might lead people to be less satisfied. But I'm interested in hearing what you described about Tanzania. It reminds me, for my earliest memories, we're spending a few years growing up in Fiji from when I was three to when I was six. And one of the things that struck me about the Fijians is they generally were such happy, well-connected people, living very simple lifestyles. There weren't many consumer goods on offer in those days, but just the way that people lived in their village life, they were very much focused on connection. 
with each other. And they had their routines that they went about. I remember they even would clip the grass with scissors. It's not like they had mowers or whatever. That would seem to be quite a time-consuming activity. But hey, when people had the time to do that and they'd chat with each other whilst they were doing it, it was not like they really lacked something at the time. So yes, it's interesting to look at what we prioritise and maybe sometimes having too much choice, including around consumer goods or too much emphasis on material things or material choices to make us happy, that might distract us away from other things that are more important, like how we spend time engaging with and connecting with other people. Well, it's so true. And and I suppose as well, Dad, knowing the... Uh, the small amount about marketing that I do as well, you know, I can speak from experience in terms, there's so many, I suppose, brands out there, there's so many marketers out there who are competing for your choice as well. You know, I, I wasn't actually going to bring this up, Dad, but I was walking through the supermarket the other day and on sale, there was a, it was a $1 Twix bar on sale and before I even sort of knew what I was doing, I'd picked it up and put it in me, uh, in me basket and I got home and I thought, I don't even really like Twix bars that much. It must have been years since I've had one. And, and so, but to me, it's, you know, thinking about some of this sort of stuff, it's, it was almost a choice that was made for me. It, you know, it sort of wasn't, it wasn't maybe a rational thing that I was going, oh, geez, really feel like a Twix bar today. But there it sits in my fridge still to this day. So maybe at a, maybe at a time in the future that'll come back and uh, help me out that choice. But uh, I think, Dad, maybe it's worth having a look at some of the reasons why having a whole bunch of choices leads us to greater dissatisfaction in a way. So maybe if we unpack that a little bit now, what are some of those reasons? Okay, and, and the general context here is looking at if we do have a very large number of choices, just say for a consumer good, like a chocolate bar or something like that, presumably there should be more chance of us finding an optimal kind of product. So in other words, more choices on the face of it ought to lead us to have a chance for a better match. And yet, even if that's the case, often with more choice, people end up feeling worse about their choice, less happy about their choice, less satisfied about it, maybe wondering if they made the right choice or not. And what are the reasons for this? The first one is probably rising expectations. Because we've got so much more choice, we expect more. What if we face this idea saying, hey, new and improved, here's a new and improved product? Well, suddenly that's telling us that maybe we shouldn't be too happy with the old product. There's this whole notion that maybe things will be better if we choose something else, so that really primes our expectations. Well, it's such an interesting point, Dad, and oh, I suppose to, uh, to use a bit of a modern example, I was, I was reading something the other day about uh, dating apps, about the use of uh, dating apps and how, how that's affected things. And I believe the, oh, I can't actually remember what the exact number is, but basically it's a, it's a significantly higher percentage of relationships who start out on dating apps basically end because of this idea of choice. It's almost like the idea of, you know, swiping left swiping right it's like even when you are with someone there is still that idea of well there's, there's so many more options out there and oh, it, it's killing me what this number is but it was significantly higher the percentage but I suppose what that suggests is that even after people get together which you know seemingly the whole almost swipe left swipe right thing would be over in a way but it seems that people are still having this idea in the back of their mind that there are so many other choices out there and it's not as if they've fully, completely settled on their choice forever. Now, that's a really interesting example that relates to the next point, which is described as opportunity costs. Whenever we make a decision, just for example, someone looks to rent a certain house in a certain location, then it means that there are other options that people are not choosing. But just say that there are a ton of other options rather than just one or two other options. What tends to happen is people think, oh, we've chosen this house, but the other one had larger bedrooms. But there was this other one that had a better backyard. This other one had a better kitchen or the bathroom was larger or it had an extra bathroom. And what tends to happen is people think of all the advantages sometimes of all these other houses they might have chosen, they don't necessarily think of the advantages or disadvantages of the house they chose compared to one other, which might also have, say, a small backyard and not such a good kitchen or whatever. People tend to think 
of all the different positive attributes they've missed out on by not choosing one of the other places. And that could apply to relationships as well. People can imagine, oh, look, it could be this good-looking person I could have been with, with a great sense of humour, who lived nearby. Again, the more choice there is, the more alternatives, then the more attributes that people can think of that they might have missed out on. So it can actually lead people to be less satisfied even though they had a larger pool or range of alternatives available to them. Well, that's interesting. And I suppose like the, like the other thing that it seems about that too is that you know, if you have a whole range of examples to choose from, potentially you're going to extrapolate as well and think, well, although it's not necessarily directly in front of me, you know, there could be one that completely fits, you know, exactly everything that I'm looking for. Because, you know, if there's one with a, if we're talking about houses now, there's one with a pool, there's one with a big backyard, there's one with a big front yard, and there's one with a, you know, nice carport. Well, you know, if there's all four of those things, and then the combination of them, well, you know, it potentially going to lead you to think, well, surely there's one out there that's got all four sort of thing. It's, yeah, you may not even necessarily need to be exposed to an example, but you're thinking, oh, I'm, like, I'm sure it's there. It's just, oh, I haven't found it yet. Exactly. What you're getting at there is the more alternatives that we can imagine, but as well as we face, the more we're faced with the idea of trade-offs. Oh, okay, if I choose this, this might be wonderful for, again, the size of the bedrooms, the location, some of the facilities, uh, near where friends live. However, it's missing out this, that or the other. Then people are aware of the trade-offs they're making because it's as though there's this fantasy, like the high expectations thing. There's like this fantasy Oh, with all this choice, maybe I can just choose something ideal. You know, I've got to make the best choice. That's the pressure we can have on ourselves. Oh, I've got to make the best choice. And there can be this illusion that one choice available should be able to match all of those things. So anything less is a trade-off, and we generally have an aversion to having to make trade-offs. So that can lead people to be less satisfied with their choice, even after they've made what otherwise would be a very reasonable choice, especially if it was the only one available. Well, I suppose as well, as you say, if there's one option, you potentially look at all the things that it has. Whereas if there's a hundred options, you're probably looking at all the things that each particular one doesn't have. So even just uh, having so many options potentially puts a bit of a negative angle on it. Yes, and there's something about that when we have so many options, it's often going to take more time and energy. For example, just say if we're looking to choose a second-hand car. If there were two or three available within our price range, it might be more straightforward to look at certain kind of attributes. But what if we were looking at, say, 200 different used cars and actually trying to visit the dealer and have a look at them or whatever? Like, I'm slightly exaggerating now, but you can imagine how much time and energy would it take to make one choice relative to another choice? And one thing that people often don't factor in if they're agonising too much about a choice or really spending a lot of time on it. There's a principle called adaptation. What adaptation means is over a lengthy period of time, our well-being tends to revert to a similar kind of level. Now, this is as amazing as if people win a lottery or are in a serious car accident and become paraplegic. If people predict how they're going to be feeling in three or five years' time, they really get it wrong. Because the people who've won the lottery think, oh, look, I'll still be feeling fantastic in five years' time. The truth is, in five years' time, they're probably not going to be feeling much different mood-wise to how they felt just before they won the lottery. And the same thing applies when people have had a significant accident. Why? People adapt over a period of time, people's expectations change, they get used to things being a certain kind of way. Like we can think with adaptation, for example, even if people are in a house without an air conditioner. Well, first of all, getting in an air conditioner, especially on a hot day, and people can feel wonderful, they get all this pleasure out of it. But over a period of time, rather than any extra pleasure, people tend to maintain a certain level of comfort. The same with a brand spanking new car. Wonderful at first, all this pleasure driving it around. After a period of time, there's this what's called hedonic adaptation, like your pleasure level adapts. So after a period of time, you might still enjoy your car, but it's kind of like more comfortable and that sort of, it's pleasant enough, but not that 
extra keen pleasure. So good things, bad things are not going to have so much impact down the track. And so sometimes it's worth keeping that in mind when making a choice. Sometimes it's not worth agonising too much or too extensively, even about a significant choice, because down the track, it's not like it'll be the be-all and end-all to whether we're happy in life or not. Well, that is so interesting, Dad, that, that idea of adaptation, because you know it's certainly not something that I, I think that we really factor in when we do make a choice, because you know we realise that there's novelty in situations, we realise that novelty is going to wear off in a lot of situations, but when we're making a choice, it's not as if we go, oh, there's going to be about a month worth of novelty, and then it's going to sort of, you know cool down from there a little bit and but it's interesting it's sort of yeah, it's, it's one of those ones I suppose is a little bit counterintuitive in a way too as, as I say it's not necessarily something that you factor in but I suppose what springs to mind is I remember when I was traveling dad and to me this just highlights this so much because you know traveling is just in my view one of the best things you can do it's it's one of my favorite things I've ever done sort of thing but I'll tell you what living out of a backpack after three months I was pretty ready to to find a uh, a longer term situation, and and to me that's something where you know if, if I was sort of sitting here now, what I would give to you know spend three months living out of a backpack. But once you're in that situation, it actually is a bit of a different set of circumstances in terms of as you say, you do adapt to things a little bit more in terms of you know the the highs quite aren't quite as high, the lows aren't quite as low, and. Yeah, maybe some things that are a little bit more irritating become a little bit more irritating. It's a little bit uh, less hard to distract yourself from and that sort of thing. Yes, and if we think of it the other way, like certainly if we go back a couple of years, how horrendous things seemed at first when COVID hit. We're looking at how it was going to impact on our lives in different ways. And, and it has impacted on our lives in different ways. And there have been many restrictions that we've faced. But I bet many people found there are different ways that they adapted and workplaces adapted and people's families adapted. So as much as there was difficulty and restriction, I bet also many people found some things turned out kind of OK, including many people appreciated working from home so much that now there are real shifts and many people are returning to the workplace, many are choosing to still have some days working at home and that's an extra flexibility that's come into our community, partly because there were things that compensated for things being pretty bad as well. So just recognising that often things end up not as wonderfully brilliant as we anticipate they should be, nor as terrible as we think they could be. Certainly, Dad, and and well, I think it's worth it's worth maybe now touching on a, a situation where we can maybe reflect on things that have turned out a little bit terribly in terms of regret. So maybe how does how does regret fit in here? Okay, well, that's one of the things where we're going to tend to react worse with choices and when faced with a lot of choice is if we take excessive self responsibility. So some of the things that people can be inclined to do with lots and lots of choice is experience more regret if they think, oh, there are all these different things I could have chosen and I didn't. So there's that opportunity cost idea. Or self-blame. For example, someone might have choose to move to a certain country that then ended up, well, maybe it did end up to be a war zone or something difficult happened. And if someone was going to take excessive responsibility, they could blame themselves for that. But when people are inclined to take too much responsibility then the more choice we have, the more risk there is of someone feeling regret or self-blame. Oh, I should have chosen this. Oh, I could have chosen that job. It worked out so well. Oh, this other investment. I've heard people have gone into that one and that's gone so well. Oh, gee, I regret not having invested my funds in that. That general idea, the more choices there are, the more we can get caught up in regret or self-blame if we're inclined to in the first place. Well, I think that's such an important point, Dad, and, and, and one that's, I think, in many ways central to this topic, and particularly as we talk about things like freedom, in terms of, like, that's the flip side of freedom in, in many ways, in terms of, like, yeah, there's a whole range more choices that we can go down, but there's also implications for all the choices that we make, and of course, all the choices that we don't make as well, so yeah, I think that is an interesting one to, to touch on. Yes, and it can come up more that way in relationships. For example, in countries where there are arranged marriages... Well, people can't help their choice, so to speak. And there are many indications that people can be more satisfied with their marriage in situations where it was arranged. 
But the challenge there is particularly if people really get stuck into themselves, as we sometimes find someone might have found themselves being with a partner who's quite abusive. And then they might blame themselves for that. That's where we see a number of people have experienced domestic violence or trauma. And there are many situations where there's a fair bit of self-blame and unwarranted guilt that people can take on. And one of the things that's important there is for the person to watch out for taking that excessive responsibility and recognising that often there wasn't the indication at first that their partner would turn out that way. But that's another example of when people have choice and take excessive responsibility, then that can lead to more difficulty. And I wondered, Dad, as well, if one thing that potentially complicates things like that in a way is, you know, these days, for example, with social media, you know, it's almost like anything that we do, there is that potential comparison to be had with our friends, with others our age who are, you know, potentially famous, who potentially have access to Photoshop and things like this as well. So I wonder if that potentially complicates... Uh, this too and and particularly with things like regret and self-blame and all this sort of stuff when you have a comparison which you know seems in in many ways a direct comparison but it's it rarely if ever is I wonder if social media is something that potentially complicates things too Yes, I think if we look at social comparisons, then social media really amplifies that. For example, on Facebook, we might be seeing how people are spending their time, where they're going on holiday, maybe something in their homes, who they're spending time with, where they're living. These things basically keep choices about how we might live in our face, so to speak. And especially when you think people are going to be posting the most favourable pictures of how they look or what they're wearing or where they are or where they're holidaying or those positive kind of experiences. So that's going to maybe lead to a feeling of comparison that other people are having all these wonderful experiences from the choices that they're making and it maybe can lead people to question more their own. Well, I think uh, Instagram is certainly something that that comes to mind there in terms of maybe even the way that we uh, deliberately try and put ourselves forward is to uh, to capitalise on some of that a little bit. But it seems to me, Dad, I suppose similarly to flow in some ways that we spoke about over the last couple of podcasts, there can be an element of this which is a little bit individual and personal in a way in terms of there can be different ways that we approach choices and even you know within ourselves at different times we can approach choices in different ways so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yes well a key thing here is as Barry Schwartz described there are different patterns or approaches to how we go about making choices and he described a contrast between maximizers and satisficers. What's the difference between a maximizer and a satisficer? Well, a maximizer is going to try to make every purchase or decision the best decision. I've got to make the best choice. I've got to absolutely see that I can do all I can to get the best option in the long run. And so that can put a lot of pressure on in different ways, whereas a satisficer is going to tend to look to make a good enough decision. And what this means is that people, when their maximizers are going to take longer over decisions, will probably be more concerned about whether they're making the right one and often will be somewhat less satisfied about the decisions that they make because of this expectation of it being the right one. So it's partly to do with expectations. It's almost like a form of perfectionism, if you like. It's just trying to make the right choice, the optimal one. And so what I wonder about that then is it likely that, for example, if someone identifies as a, as a maximizer, is that how they're going to approach all of their decisions? Or could it be, for example, for example, you might be a, a maximizer in, in some things and a satisficer in other things, just in terms of the, I suppose, different ways that we approach choices? Yes, I think we can have a different approach in different situations. And as one example I would use is if I was going to go to a workshop, for example, I want to know ahead of time it's likely to be a pretty worthwhile workshop for spending time. Whereas choosing a movie, I'm not that fussed. It mightn't have had the greatest review, but if the theme seems you know good enough, I'm happy to see a whole range of movies. So people will vary in certain ways, but these are some of the characteristics we can look at to gauge whether we're more a maximizer or a satisficer. If we're a maximizer, then even, say, watching TV or something like that, you're going to more likely channel surf. Or if you're listening to the radio, check out other radio stations. Or if you're looking to pick a movie, you might take longer to pick a movie because you're trying to get it right. Or also for a maximizer, 
You might find it hard when you're shopping for clothing to find what you want because you're really looking for that item that will really suit you in a certain way. Also, maybe more significantly, maximizers will tend to engage in somewhat more social comparison. And what that means is if a maximizer is shopping, they're more likely to notice what kind of things other people are buying than just look at something themselves that might suit them and be good enough. More broadly, again, if people are maximizers or have that style, they're more likely to be fantasizing about how other alternatives could turn out. And this could even include other life choices. Oh, how might that other decision have turned out compared to what I'm choosing? Or people might anticipate how other choices might turn out and spend more time on that than a satisficer. So generally, the idea of a maximizer is not settling for second best. Even if they're happy enough with, say, their job, they might still be on the lookout for whether something else is better. And so generally there's that more time and effort invested, more concern about getting the right decision. And the downside is people are somewhat less likely to be satisfied with their choice. Well, it's interesting, Dad, because it's, uh, look, I must admit, as you were talking about that, there's elements of that that I really relate to in a way in terms of, you know, probably less so, you know, some of the, some of the grander scale stuff. But it's funny that you said that you were, you know, not so much of a maximizer to do with movies because I'll tell you what, sometimes I so struggle to pick something on Netflix or, you know, even podcasts and stuff. Sometimes you can spend the entire length of a podcast deciding what podcast you're going to listen to before bed and you sort of end up going, oh, what, what am I doing there? But I suppose to look at what, what we can do now because I think it is looking at, you know, as you say, like if we're a maximizer, we're potentially going to find ourselves in a situation where, you know, we create more choices for ourselves than even what's available. But look, I suppose one thing that I think has, has really worked for me in a way, Dad, and I'll, look, I'll pass this on and, and I'll, yeah, it'd be good to get your thoughts on it in a way because, you know, as I say, look, there's elements to which, you know, particularly with stuff like, yeah, Netflix, all this sort of stuff, like I'm a maximizer. But one thing I do whenever I go to a restaurant now, if I'm, you know, for example, out for brunch and there's Eggs Benedict on the menu, I will order Eggs Benedict without reading anything else on the menu. That is me, done and dusted, happy with my Eggs Benedict and flat white, moving right along. Same as if I'm out at the pub for dinner. If there's a chicken palmy on the menu, bang, see you later. Chicken palmy, sorted, close up the menu. Sometimes I don't even need to open the menu. If I know there's a chicken palmy, away we go. So I wonder if there's maybe potentially situations where, you know, you can even sort of see yourself as a maximizer in a way, but by not even just giving yourself the options, it's almost as if you recognize, well, hold on, I can be a satisficer in this situation. I know that's going to be good enough for me in this situation. Let's tick the box and move on. I think there's a lot in that, the notion of, yes, yeah, sometimes just looking to tick the box and move on, or generally experiment with the idea of spending a little less time agonizing over decisions, a little less time and energy. And especially if we have, if you like, some practice in spending less time and energy on some of those more simple decisions or what might seem to be trivial decisions, we can also maybe explore some of the slightly more significant decisions, like say, going for a holiday. One thing, rather than thinking of 10 different alternatives, what if we break it down to just a few you know, two or three different alternatives. Oh, I feel like this kind of holiday or that kind of holiday and maybe discuss with family members, others who are involved, but looking to contain the number of options and see how that goes because there are advantages in constraining choices. You mentioned earlier about Steve Jobs. Another thing he used to do is always wear the same kind of thing, the turtleneck sweaters, the black sweaters. Now, why then he wouldn't have to waste any time expended on a decision of what do I wear today. So that's where a number of people might find that they might have certain kind of work outfits or other kind of situations they might find that they have go-to elements of clothing that make it a little bit easier to make that choice. And if people are spending an inordinate amount of time on that or any other choice, it can be worth reducing our choices, and there are other ways that we do that. Any rule that we have, rules can make it easier for ourselves. It might be, hey, if I go out to a certain social function, I will contain it to a certain number of drinks, 
for example. Then you're not even making the choice after that whether you will choose to have more drinks or a different drink or something like that. You're basically choosing to contain it. Or even things like fidelity in marriage. For someone to make that choice of committing themselves to their partner, well, that can minimise conflict, if you like, about the person feeling potentially attracted to someone else. That commitment helps. So any way in life that we have certain kind of rules or certain kind of standards that we adhere to and also certain kinds of routines, these are things that actually help reduce choices. If I've got a rule that I'm not going to spend more than a certain amount in a certain kind of situation or a routine that I'm going to tend to look to get to bed by a certain time, for example, any kind of rules or routines that we have can actually help by constraining choices. So people might think of their own rules that they have or standards that they have or routines that they have. These are things that sometimes might seem like they limit our choices, but sometimes these constraints can give you a greater sense of freedom. Because you're not agonising about, will I, won't I, do this, do that. It can make it easier. Well, that's fascinating, Dad, because what really came to mind for me there, and I hadn't really quite thought about it in this way, but for example, a religious belief, a set of religious beliefs, or a, yeah, like a, a religious superstructure that we might have in a way, to me, that's a way that can constrain things in terms of, look, there might be, yeah, whether it be a holy document or, yeah, there might be a, the teaching of a, of a particular person or, or, or figure or, yeah, or a prophet or something. But it seems to me that people who adhere to a religious structure or a religious belief system in a way, it seems that this is part of what they're trying to do, or maybe not even necessarily trying to do it, might not necessarily be as explicit. But at the same time, this could be one of the benefits that comes out of, for example, having a, a system of religious beliefs, because it does help to constrain things in that way. I think that's a good example. And as you were describing that, I was thinking of any kind of code... Well, you also think of like sporting codes and the rules of any game actually help it function better. Or even if you look at a sporting team, having a game plan. Well, in some ways that constrains the choices of members of the team, but presumably it still can allow a certain amount of freedom for people to be able to show some flair or particular ability within an overall game plan. But if we have, say, guidelines in a work situation or policies... It actually can be freeing up to not have to make a choice. Will I do this or not do that? Oh, wait a minute, we've got a policy on that. Oh, actually, that makes it easier to know how to move forward with that. So having codes and guidelines, they help us deal with complex and ambiguous situations. And if it weren't for that, we'd be having to make all sorts of decisions that would just be draining us of time and energy. And that's, of course, you know, where even, like, as you say, like, it can be a, a value system in terms of, you know, if I'm someone who wants to be collaborative, well, potentially that word collaborative, that, that can guide me in a way if I am to, uh, to make a choice in the future. So, yeah, I, I think it's good that, uh, that, that focus, I suppose, on values and constraints in a way, because to me, that, that is part of the key to some of this sort of stuff. As I said, you know, on a previous podcast, it's that idea of, you know, we've got the you know, it's not about having freedom, it's more freedom to kind of find our flow and all this sort of stuff. Well, the more that we can constrain things and recognise, well, you know, this is a, a constraint for a particular reason, you know, this is outside of my value set or this is not someone who I want to, you know, be remembered for or whatever reason that you have for it, that is going to limit the overwhelm that could potentially arise. Yes, and actually as we're getting on to looking at what things we can do to help deal with choices, and there are a number of specific points we can come to shortly, but as you were describing that, it reminded me of what we've talked about in the past with character strengths, including character strengths and flow. If we think of what kind of job might we choose, one way of helping constrain it and guiding us is thinking, well, I'd rather choose a job that draws on my top character strengths and at least some of them. And that helps us rule out a number of other choices that maybe don't help with that. And if we find, say, work options that allow us the opportunity to use quite a number of our character strengths or some of our top character strengths quite extensively, then we've got something which might be good enough to go ahead with. So if something else is obviously an alternative that might have extra attractive aspects to it, then Yes, it might be worthwhile considering that. But once we've got something good enough, 
sometimes it's worth committing to something rather than agonising for way too long about other alternatives, then we can commit ourselves to a course of action, invest in that, and then we're engaged in what we're doing. And I think that idea of good enough is a good one and one that potentially could be hard to get a sense of as well at a time. Like, for example, if you're a maximizer, through your very nature, you're potentially not going to have the greatest concept of good enough because otherwise you'd, you'd be a satisfier in a way. So I wonder if you could help us maybe maybe discern, like obviously like the character strengths seem to be a great way to maybe point us in the direction of what that good enough is. I imagine if something is, you know, within our top character strengths profile, we can have some trust that it's going to be good enough for us in a way. I wonder if maybe feeling gratitude and, and maybe certain other positive emotions, if we can reflect on things in a certain way and recognise, say, say, a positive emotion, recognise whether it be gratitude or recognise some positivity, we can almost file something away as being good enough. But I wonder if you could speak to that idea of how can we identify what is good enough if we are potentially a maximizer who, who may not necessarily have the most organic concept of it. I think part of it would probably be practicing in some situations which maybe don't have such heavy duty consequences. If someone thinks I might be a bit of a maximizer, well, how can I experiment with this? Well, initially it might be things like choosing from a menu. That's a fairly mild decision. If people agonize over that, well, choosing something a little bit quicker and seeing how it goes. It might come out and it might not be the ideal thing, but look to at least enjoy the food you've chosen, for example. Maybe same thing with choosing an item of clothing. It might be choosing that you go to no more than two different stores and maybe give yourself a certain time limit to buy something with. And then maybe looking to focus on what suits you about that item of clothing. Moving on from too much comparison of imagining what another article of clothing might have been like or fantasising if something might have been even better. If you like purchasing something and leave it at that. So one of the things is limiting the number of options that we have, like just choosing between two or three different alternatives, limiting the time to choose, only choosing there'll be a couple of stores that we go to, maybe limiting the amount we might spend on a purchase, or if it's something like choosing a house to rent or something like that, it might be giving ourselves a certain time frame. And it might be choosing between just, say, three different suburbs, maybe emphasising a few key things that wouldn't want to negotiate on, and look to make allowance for others. So part of it is some preparedness to compromise, not have to have the very best, and notice that once we've made a choice, if in our mind we're starting to fault-find with the choice that we're making, or we're starting to fantasise about the benefits of the choices we haven't made, looking to contain, looking to contain the time we spend on that, and more, look to make the most of the choice that we have. That's actually the army's approach to decision-making. Make a choice and then make that choice work. In other words, be invested in your choice of course or where you're living or how you've chosen to spend your time on that holiday. Invest yourself in what you're doing. At least be engaged in that because then you're more likely to get some level of satisfaction and flow. Well, it's so interesting, Dad. I think it's something that I heard one time about, I think the most successful entrepreneurs are said to make decisions quickly and take a long time to change their mind. So it's as if they go, all right, here we go. All right, we're going in this direction and we're going full hell for leather for it sort of thing. So I, I like that idea. But I suppose, Dad, just to finish up, I know there's a, there's a list of things here that are some potential tips to help people make their decisions, maybe we could just go through some of those because uh, because I believe, yeah, they're, they're certainly going to help people, particularly if there may be someone like myself who, who spends a little bit too much time on the Netflix home screen. Dad, what are some tips for people to help make their choices? Yes, well, going back to Barry Schwartz's tips, these 10 tips we'll go through. One of the first things is choosing when to choose. Is it worth spending much time on something or is it a more trivial decision? doesn't matter that much. It's worth choosing something quickly. So I think choosing when to choose. And so clearly if it is something like a course of study or where we're going to be living or something which is major, that justifies spending a little bit more time on it. But if it's a more trivial decision, like what we're going to wear that particular day, maybe we can make that a bit simpler for ourselves. 
Another thing more generally is aim to be a satisficer. Aim for the good enough and see how that goes. So again, people might practice that with more, if you like, simple decisions. But if people face a major decision that's a real challenge and you're getting caught up with it, maybe even then looking to choose something and look at what's good enough in that. When we make a decision, one of the key things is be prepared to think less about opportunity costs. In other words, don't spend much time thinking of what else you could have chosen or the advantages of some other rental property you saw or car you could have bought or clothing you could have got or holiday destination you could have gone to. If you find your thoughts running to the other things that you haven't chosen, looking to limit that and redirect your attention to where you are, what you're doing now, so to speak. As you were suggesting earlier, if we can make decisions non-reversible, if we can commit, we're less likely to go through agonising about what else we could have done. As you said, like entrepreneurs, make a decision quickly and then tend to stick to that. That's that principle. You invest your energy in the decision that you've made. Something you mentioned earlier too about gratitude Gratitude makes a big difference. If we can be grateful for our circumstances now, maybe even comparing to how things might have been worse, rather than get caught up in comparing with what could have been different, that opportunity cost, appreciating what we have now. What we know is when people are grateful, we express that gratitude, you tend to be more optimistic, more healthy, more alert, more enthusiastic, you're even more likely to achieve your goals. So being grateful for what you have and the positives of what you've chosen. Limiting regret, basically it's a wasteful emotion. Usually regret, negative, wasteful. You can't turn back the clock. What's happened's happened. It's what choices you make now that count. Anticipate adaptation. So get used to the idea that whatever you choose or whatever happens, good or bad, it's going to tend to revert a bit more to a mean down the track. So not sweating too much over situations that seem bad and not sweating the small stuff, so to speak, as well. In the long run, it's not likely to make so much difference as might seem at first. More obviously, managing our expectations is a general one. Part of that's also limiting our social comparisons. Maybe for some people that means spending less time on social media as well. But if you find yourself comparing a bit, really noticing what other people are wearing, doing, and if you're feeling maybe less satisfied about your own experience from that, it might be worth cutting back the time on that or at least reducing those comparisons, if you like. And finally, a general tip, the opposite of having too much choice is recognising their benefits to constraints. So when we go by a certain rule or policy for ourselves, certain standards that we look to live by, certain routines that we adopt, that might be containing aspects of our freedom in some ways or choice. Actually, it can free us up more at times. We could be spending less time agonising over different things. We've got less choices that we need to make that can slightly simplify our life in some ways. Sometimes there's freedom in constraints. Well, they're all great tips, Dad. And, and I know for me anyway, I think recognising some of this stuff can really help us as well. And, and you know, even going through that list there, which I'll, I will put up uh, that list on today's episode page, which you can get at sykespiels.com.au. And I suppose, you know, what was coming to mind for me when going through that list is, you know, I had an example of a time recently and, and I wonder if... if Maybe thinking of something like this, if maybe everyone out there would have an example for themselves that, that would help them too. But, you know, as I've said, Dad, a bit of a maximizer, particularly on the old Netflix. Uh, I have, on the odd occasion, struggled to uh, find something to watch in a, a timely manner. And I recently had an experience where I was with a friend. We were deciding on a movie to watch, and they hadn't seen the, the King's Speech, that movie. And, and I remember, oh, it must have been a couple of days previous, was, was within a week. Saying to myself, coming across the King's Speech and thinking, oh, you know, I've watched that fairly recently. I don't know if I'm writing into the King's Speech. And I ended up, I can't even remember what I watched that night, but ended up watching the King's Speech about three days later. And, you know, my friend hadn't seen it. I thought, oh, it's a good movie. We'll put it on. Anyway, I love the King's Speech. Like, it's a, it's a cracking film. But I remember thinking three days previous when I was by myself in that situation, I was like, ah, oh, 
I'm going to get so bored of this movie. I haven't seen it in so long. And then within three days, I was watching it and enjoying it. And so now I can almost look back on it and almost go, oh, is this going to be another King's speech? Is it something that I should just get on with? And, and, and that's almost having that example. I can now look at back on it and go, well, that was maybe a, I, I probably didn't recognize this at, a t- at the time, but there was maybe a situation where I was maybe maximizing things a little bit too much. And maybe when I applied a little bit more, what's the words? Satisfaction? Is what you say? Being a satisficer? But when I was a little bit more of a satisficer, that to me, I gained great benefit. So it seems from recognizing some of this sort of stuff, if we can reflect on certain situations where we have been able to apply a little bit more of the good enough thinking, then we can almost just maybe catch ourselves at times when we are being a little bit too much of a maximizer and go, hold on, let's, let's maybe apply some of the thinking that we applied in this other situation and it worked for us. So yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully it's going to be helpful for everyone today to discuss some of this stuff and they're going to be able to build up their own examples of, of when they are, they just got over it, dad, because <laughs> that's what I feel I need to get a bit better at sometimes when choosing a movie, just get over it and pick one. I like that example, the approach of kind of having a bit of a play with it, experimenting with it a bit, and just as you described there, thinking, yes, it might be another King's Speech kind of situation. So just generally, and one final thing would add, when people are suffering from anxiety and depression, it can make it even more difficult to make choices. However, people can get stuck with that paralysis, that inertia even more. This principle applies there as well. Sometimes if people pick any course of action, make any choice, the good thing about making some choice, any choice, which might well be good enough, is it gets you going. It gets you engaged. It gets you acting rather than being stuck, rather than being immobile, indecisive, uncertain. That's part of the theme that sometimes it helps to simplify things for ourselves. It's so true, Dad. And, and look, we could have done a whole topic, I think, on the uh, the application of, of talking about choices to, to the mental health and mental illness side of things, because I think it is so relevant. And you know, I, like I think back to times when you know I was struggling with with mental health, and there was that element of maybe second guessing yourself. But it seems to me that the more that we can, you know, recognise how we do make choices, recognise when choices are good enough, that's going to really help us to make a choice. It's going to help us to do anything at all because if we can, yeah, discern the times when, you know, our box is ticked, it is good enough, then we can just do something, move on and think at least I did that. Yeah, so when you mentioned ticking boxes, I must admit I'm looking forward to our next week's podcast because it's a topic that's very close to my heart, as you know, synchronicity. Sometimes I think uncanny coincidences can have a remarkable role to play in helping us make certain choices. So next time we're going to look at synchronicity and choices. And um, I'm so glad that you've been prepared to indulge me in yet another topic on synchronicity again, Rowan. I thought we're doing intuition. <laughs> oh, we're doing. Okay, we are doing secret. All right, we've. Uh, no, of course, yeah. Very, very happy to do that. But uh, no, I'm very interested in that because I think there is an element of intuition that comes into it too that we didn't touch on today, Dad. So, looking forward to talking to you about that next week. See you next week, then, Rowan. <laughs>